the word. Father, we want to thank you for your faithfulness. We want to thank you, Lord, that you are a living God who is not only loving, not only kind, but hears our prayers, answers us, speaks with us, and brings us into the place that we ought to be. So, Father, we just commit this time into your hand, and we give you this next period that you would speak to us and align us to your purposes in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last couple of weeks, I've been taking us through the reality of our existence. Wow, that sounds so <laughs> ominous. I was sharing with you how it all started. Uh, from what I've told you many a time, that my favorite book, the book of Genesis, the book of all beginnings, where everything has its roots and everything has its foundations. The first interaction that took place between humanity and God after sin entered our existence is captured in Genesis chapter 3, and we read about it here. And the interactions that took place and the emotions that were felt are common emotions that we carry to this day. So there's two right there that I highlighted, guilt and shame. And uh, in the next couple of verses, we find one more, and that's fear. I was afraid. I shared with you how these three emotions, these cardinal emotions, if I can put them that way, these supreme highest level of emotions, guilt, shame, and fear, affect us in a lot of if not all, of what we do. When you're making an investment decision, you're motivated by the fear of loss. If I don't invest this money, this money is not going to be worth as much as all other money is going to be worth if I don't invest it. Uh, When you're getting married, anyway, I'll leave that one alone. When you have children, All these emotions kick in. When you're going to school, when you've prepared for an exam, if you haven't prepared for an exam, at least two of these emotions are at play. Guilt and fear, right? Maybe shame's in there as well if you have to go home and tell your parents. And I shared with you how all of this puts us uh, in a tension between all of these three different fears or emotions or feelings. And function within that, depending on where we have come from in the world, there may be more pull towards one or the others. If we're from a culture that is predominantly honor and shame, we function in a different way. It's, our, in, it's ingrained in our hardwiring almost, right? And uh, you begin to function along those lines in a lot of ways. And last time I shared with you, uh, the last thing that we shared, I shared with you the story of... Uh, the first 10 generations of humanity between Adam and Noah. And we even looked at that. We had some fun with understanding the meanings of the names. And uh, that's always exciting, the meaning of the names of the 10 men of the Bible or the first 10 men of the Bible. And uh, there's a a whole story in there, and I shared that. We have a little bit of extra time, so I'm going to take that for the sake of those that weren't here and just show that to you. 
the, main, the meaning of the names from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Adam. The first one means, Noah means rest. Isn't that cool? Noah means rest. So if you have a child and you're thinking of names, here's some 10 suggestions. <laughs> Lamech means the despairing. You don't want to use that one. <laughs> Methuselah, his death shall bring. Wow. Who names their children some of these names? I mean, like, really. Anyway, well, he died. Methuselah died at the age of 969, the oldest living human being, right? He wouldn't die, right? Enoch means teaching. So if you have the gift of teaching, you're as good as Enoch. Now, Enoch walked with God, and he didn't die. He was no more. The Bible says he just, God took him up. Which means he someday, someday is going to come back and, and pass on and through death as well. Jared means shall come down. Mahalel means the blessed God. We have a family here, the Halahel, right? And, and both of their heads just turned up here. Very close to Mahalel, right? But it has the same kind of here, uh, meaning. Uh, It means, it built into your name is the word praise. Anyway, look it up and find out more. Kenan means sorrow. Enosh means mortal. Seth means appointed. And Adam means man. So here, let's do this for, for fun. We're going to read the names upside down, from the bottom up. But we're only going to read the meanings. You with me? So we're going to read the right-hand side. So let's read it together. Man appointed... Mortal sorrow because of sin. The blessed God at Christmas time. Teaching his death shall bring despairing humanity rest. So the whole gospel message is contained in the first 10 names. That's really cool. So I love the book of Genesis for all these little hidden, uh, hidden gems in there. And you can find out more. They'll be, we'll be spending more time on that. But anyway, as I was talking about this, we were talking about the generations and how they existed and how even within the generations as they were living, you'll notice something really interesting here. Adam, who lived to 930, was around when Noah's dad was born. So they had first-hand accounts all these nine generations had first-hand accounts of the interaction between God and humanity. They didn't have to read it in the Bible. They had the living Bible themselves. They were the living Bible themselves. They told the stories. Adam shared the story of what happened when he ate the fruit of the tree as Eve offered it to him. I'm sure there was not only shame there, but also hope because God promised some things to them. He knew that he didn't have the same qualities as the one who would be coming down and dying, the seed of the woman that was promised, because he didn't take upon himself the sin in the way that he'd been the redeemer for Eve. So he must have been dealing with all kinds of emotions. He must have settled it by, you know, somewhere in here. He had settled all those emotions. Because Seth was the first one that was born after Cain killed Abel, Right? So all of these names mean something, and there are stories in there. So when the flood happened, Noah was, was 600 years old. His kids were born at the, by the age he was 500. He had all three sons. And immediately after that, 
everything, all these people had died before the flood. None of them died in the flood. God spared them. The people that were other children and other descendants, they all died in their, their own children. Not only Cain's family, but also Seth's line. Everybody died in the flood except for the eight that were in the ark. So those eight established the new humanity. And from within them, from the three sons of Noah, became the different families that later, when God mixed up their languages, became the ethnos, the different races, the different ethnic groups, based on language. We today base ethnic groups based on bloodlines. But they were all the same blood. So think about that. It wasn't that the Greeks were Greeks because they had Greek blood. It was the Greeks were Greeks because they spoke Greek. The Iranians, or the the Persians at the time, those that lived in the regions of Elam and and, uh, Persia and Assyria, but they spoke Farsi, and they became a group. And so did the Chinese, and so did the Koreans, and so did the Japanese. According to their languages, they all split up. It's fascinating when you think about it. Why is that important? Because it helps us realize that we're not that different. We're all one family. And we come from one bloodline, from Noah. We are all children of Noah. It doesn't matter what our skin color is. It doesn't matter what part of the world we're from. It doesn't matter what language we speak. It doesn't matter what we have held as you know, pride within our hearts as being different from the other. Ultimately... We're all from the same gene pool. So we need to realize that as the church. The world doesn't realize it. Maybe some bot- or biologists and some uh, anthropologists are beginning to realize that we all are coming from the same, quote-unquote, Eve and Adam. Anthropologically and genetically. They're discovering that, yes, we all have one common ancestor. That's all wonderful. This is all because I have an extra... 10 minutes. This is not part of my message. But my message centers around this. I shared with you how in all of this, God, after Israel had come into the place where uh, they had been slaves in Egypt, and there was a young little boy that was born to an Israeli mother that she put in a basket and let float on the Nile. This little boy was picked up by the sister of Pharaoh or the daughter of the Pharaoh at that time, and she adopted him, and he became an Egyptian prince. I think you all know who I'm talking about, Moses. So God watches over Moses' life. In the first 40 years, Moses is a prince in Egypt, high in power. In the second 40 years, he's a runaway killer who had killed an Egyptian guard, buried him in the sand, And later, when he found out that the Israelites had seen that, he was, what? Afraid. And he ran away. He figured that the word is going to get to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is going to kill him. The Israelites are going to make sure that this prince is going to get dishonored. So out of guilt, out of shame, and out of fear, he ran off into the wilderness, where he met this bunch of girls that were watering their camels. And he gets invited by them to meet his, their father. 
The father honors him and receives him. And now he's a guest of this father who was a priest in Midia. He was a Midianite. And these daughters, somehow relationship develops. And Moses gets married to one of this Midianite priest's daughters. And he now lives the next 40 years in exile, away from Egypt, away from all that he knew was home. But he's being taught, as it were, in the, the house of this Midianite priest, God and God's ways. But in the midst of all of this, one day he's out doing his thing as a shepherd now, from a prince to a shepherd. And he notices that there is this burning bush. Not a common phenomena in the wilderness. But it was uncommon, in, uh, not an uncommon phenomena in the, in the wilderness, because sometimes things get hot and things burn. But he noticed that this specific bush was not being consumed by the fire that was burning in it. So he noticed there was something different. And he gets attracted to it. His attention shifts to this burning bush. And he goes to it, and he's curious. And all of a sudden, he hears the voice of something speaking to him from this bush. And he hears these words. Moses. Moses. And he gets curious even more. So he comes closer to it. He says, here I am. And he hears this voice. Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Okay, this is weird. But I don't want to get hurt by this bush. Maybe I'll take off my sandals as I'm standing here before I take off and run away. So he takes off his sandals. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Same thing that happened with Adam is now happening with Moses so many thousands of years later. The reality of our existence is that something within us causes us, when we are confronted with the reality of the goodness or the bigness or the reality of God, period, something in us reacts with fear. It could be fear out of reverence, maybe. It could be fear out of guilt or shame, but it's definitely a fear. That's an encounter with God. Every encounter with an angel was the same. Every encounter with an angel in the scripture is the same. People fear the angels when the angels show up. Mary, first thing he said to him, don't be afraid. Every encounter. So when we are encountering that which is beyond the natural, visible, physical, there is a reaction of fear in us, and that's maybe okay. But what we do with that reaction and how we process it is the important thing. So Moses now has this reaction of fear as he looks not to look at God. Something within him causes that reaction. So what I wanted to do is spend some time today because immediately God responds to him and tells him something different. Later on in the conversation, he says to him, Go and now do this thing that I'm asking you to do because I heard the cry of my people Israel in Egypt and I want you to go and now become their deliverer. 
So as they're going, as, as Moses is going to go, before he goes, he has this dialogue with God. He doesn't want to do what God is saying. He's afraid of, he's not qualified. He's afraid he's not good enough. And he actually tells him, but, 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 but I have this speech problem. And he has this speech impediment. He says, I stutter, send my brother. And he says, no, I'm going to send you. God changed his mind and his strategy based on Moses' reaction and complaints. There was a plan A, but God went with plan B. Sometimes, as parents, we come up with a plan A for the family, but then when we share it with the family, the family reacts no, I don't want to go have dinner at so-and-so place. I would rather go have sushi. So we make alter. This is minor, right? A dinner a meal plan. Do you guys have that issue when you're trying to figure out things Sunday after church, where to eat, what to eat, and so forth? All the time? Well, how do you settle it? How do you settle it? Is it the father's word that, mat- that matters? Is it the mother's word that matters? Is it the children? How do you settle it? Or is it different every time? Well, in this case, Papa God said to Moses, Moses, I'm sending you to do a mission. And Moses says, but, but God, I'm not good enough. So God alters his plan. It still worked. They were still delivered. But I wonder how it would have been played out if God's plan was what originally was designed, was actually how they lived it out. So in our lives, God does the same. He works with us with plan A. And when we kick and shout and scratch and bite and all the rest of what we do, he allows us to go with a lot of plan B's or even C's. I wonder what would happen if there's a people, a community, that would really seek God for plan A and live it out. I want to be part of that kind of community because it will make me a better person. It will make me want to stick to plan A with God in my life, for my own life. I don't want plan B, even though I come, sometimes have caused plan B's or even E's and, and so forth. I think all of us have done that. So God is using this example to teach us something. But I wanted to tell you something. Look at what he's saying here. He says, when you go and tell them, he's asking, who should I tell them? is sending me. Like, who am I to go back 40 years later after they've seen me kill somebody? I go back to Egypt to the Israelites and tell them I'm going to deliver them. And they're not sure. So as they're doing all of this, he says, tell them I am who I am. I am the God, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham. And this is all in the present tense. Not I was the God of Abraham. Not I was the God of Isaac. But I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. He is the God of the living, not the dead. In other words, these people, even though they have died, they are not dead. In God's books, they're still alive and God is still working with them. Catholics have a perspective on that. They tell us that saints who have passed actually do intercession. Interesting. There may be room in there for that. I don't know. There's some stories in the New Testament that may talk about that, but that's a whole different conversation. My point is, let's be generous in how we react to a lot of people that are thinking different. And I'll tell you why. 
He says, this is my name forever. What is his name? I am. Okay? I am in the present tense. I am in the present tense. His name is I am. I am sent me to you. This is my name from generation to generation. What God is saying in all of this is that he's a relationship type of God. He is not just abstract and you bow to him and you just do things. But he is a God of relationship and a God of relationship within the generations. So I'm going to flip it on its head today and look at it from a different perspective. All relationships contain different elements. Okay? Every relationship contains certain elements. Some of these elements include authority, accountability, affirmation, and acceptance. Every relationship contains these four elements. You don't quite believe me. Okay? So let's look at our relationship with God. In our relationship with God, God says to Moses, God says to many others, I am the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is establishing this as his claim to authority. Nobody's going to question that. Don't question me on this, Moses. I am the God of these people. I'm God. There's no higher thing than me. I have all authority. Right? The next thing that he says is... Jesus describing this in, a, in, a, in an example for us, in a parable where this person gave out money and he's giving us this example as the kingdom of God and he's saying this person has five talents, this person has two talents, this person has one talent and then the time came for their master to call them to account. In other words, God actually has the right to call us to accountability. God has, Jesus gave that as an example. But we know the scripture says that it's appointed unto men to, to live and then die once and then judgment. There is a judgment then coming that's on all mankind. God is not only having full authority, but he has the right to have us come to accountability. Right? Okay. And he also says to Jeremiah in chapter 29, For I know the plans I have for you. So he has plans. And they're good plans. Why? Because we're good in his sight. So he's telling Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I want to make sure that you understand this. I have good things for you. I affirm you. I believe in you. I trust you. I, I want to pour into you. In other words, he's speaking affirmation to Jeremiah. And then lastly, oops, Lastly, we read that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, which in effect is acceptance. And I want to focus on this one for a minute. I'm going to go back through the, the slide because I really want to hone in on this one. Right? Accountability. I know the plans I have for you. I affirm you. And then he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. I submit to you that this is unconditional acceptance. This has nothing to do with worth, performance, accountability, 
It has nothing to do with anything at all other than God decided to accept us in our state, in our condition, as bad, as dirty, as filthy, as sinful as we are. If you have an issue with this, we need to talk. Because this is the essence of what God's relationship with us is all about. We have taken this and we have misunderstood it. And it goes right back to Adam and Eve. When they were in the garden, what was the relationship like? Before the fall, every day God would show up and they would walk with God. Which way was the flow in this relationship? Was it from top down or was it from bottom up? Was it from the place of God accepting Adam and walking with Adam? And in that acceptance, showing Adam that he affirms Adam? From the day of creation, God comes to Adam and says, Adam, I've created you. Now go and and name all these animals. I've given you all these plants to enjoy. I will put you to sleep and I will make you a wife. All of these things come from the place and the foundation of God's, first of all, acceptance of Adam as he is. And then he builds on it all these things. After he accepted him and affirmed him is where he calls him to accountability and tells him, hey, listen, Adam, there's one tree you shouldn't touch. Not touch. He said you shouldn't eat of that tree because the day you eat of it, something bad is going to happen. You will die. So in terms of this flow, it's flowing from bottom to top. It doesn't happen that it's flowing from top to bottom until Adam sinned. The moment Adam sinned, this broke. It no longer was a relationship based on God's acceptance of Adam. And now it became, I am afraid of you because I heard you walking in the garden and you are the authority. Everything flipped upside down. No longer did he know him as God the Father that he walked with Daddy every day. But he, his eyes were open and he saw what was always there. God as God and God as judge and God as master. Everything was flipped upside down because of sin. And we inherited that. And we continue walking in that. Every time you come into a place of encounter with God, you don't see him from acceptance up. You see him from authority down. And that's the way we see every level of authority in our world. In Iran, the mullahs today have authority. And they demand accountability by everybody. If you live according to the rules that they want to play with, they will affirm you. They will tell you how good you are. And after that, they will accept you and maybe give you a position. In our homes, because of the fact that we're broken, it's no different. The father is the ultimate authority in the house. The wife has to submit to him. I mean, I prepared verses for this. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the wife is her husband. Are you listening, women? Okay. And the head of Christ is God. Uh-oh. Maybe it's not that simple. As far as accountability, 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to your husbands. This is amazing, guys. We've got the market on submission. Women have to submit to us. But that's because it's upside down. But as far as affirmation, he goes on and says something else. He says, an excellent wife who can find. Proverbs 31. She's worth more than rubies, jewels, right? The heart of her husband trusts her. Why? Is it because it came from the top down? The husband's authority is paramount and then the wife now submits to him and now she is a good wife? Or is it different? It's different. Husbands. Uh Uh-oh. Forget everything I said up at the top there. Listen to this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, died on the cross for her. Just in case you missed it. Okay? Having, that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. Acceptance. When did he do that? That God is asking us to do the same. So when it comes to these four words, how do we play? How do we play in our relationships? How do we play in the church? I happen to be a pastor in the church. Pastors are sometimes called elders. Elders are the leaders in the church. This says the elders who direct the affairs of the church because they are the ones who are to direct the affairs of the church. In other words, they are the ones in whose hands the responsibility slash authority rests. Just in case we ever forget that because sometimes we have congregations that decide everything based on a popular vote. Right? We've, we've, we've gone across the whole spectrum. There are some churches where it's called congregational type government where the congregation votes on key decisions, every decision. Budgets and this and that. But we, we find model in the scripture where the people brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet, and the apostles decided how to spend it and what to do with it and how to manage the affairs. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. Okay, that's good. So if you're an elder in this church and you're doing well, hats off to you. We honor you. Those who especially those who work at preaching and teaching. Wow. It continues and say they're worthy of double honor. Ooh, wow. That's the place of authority in the church. Have confidence in your leaders, it says, and submit to their authority because they keep watch over your soul as those who must give an account. Okay, so we have seen some churches. I've been in a church where the elders... We're so entrusted with this leadership authority that people would not marry without getting the blessing of the pastor and the elders. Or they would not move out of town to take a job outside until they spoke to the elders and got their permission. Now we had a movement called the shepherding movement in the 70s and the 80s where this was common. And this was now coming back into the church, the idea of the authority within the government of the church and the family of the church. 
This is all because God is doing something much bigger than all of these things that have happened over the last number of years. He's restoring something fundamental in the relationships within the context of the church. He is reestablishing family as the true government of the church. So he's bringing correction to all of these different things. There may be something beyond family, I don't know, but family is the heart of what we have seen right now that the Lord is doing with the church. That he is the father, Christ is the son, and it's a family. As much as it is a government, as much as it is a kingdom, as much as it's an army, as much as it's a, a hospital, all of this is within the context of a family. So he says, submit to your elders, to their authority, the authority up here, because they keep watching, must give an account. Hmm. So an accountability structure is there. Barnabas was a man who was living in the Israel region when this man called Saul, a Jew, was going around killing Christians. And then this Saul has a trip one day to Damascus, and on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him, and he has an amazing conversion experience where he realized that Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews. He was persecuting the Christians because he thought they were destroying the structure of Judaism. So he comes to himself, and now Barnabas affirms Paul. He brings him under his wing, he begins to teach him, he disciples him, and he brings him to the other apostles and tells them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord has spoken to Saul, and how Saul is actually preaching the same gospel. So there's an affirmation there between an elder and a member. And then we hear Jesus telling Peter, who had betrayed him a couple times, three times, the night of his arrest. Peter betrays Jesus three times, but then after the resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. What's going on? Feed my sheep. He doesn't say feed my good sheep. He doesn't say feed the sheep who are obedient. He just says, plain and simple, as a leader in the church, feed my sheep. Every one of my children is my sheep. sheep. Feed them each. Feed them all. Feed them indiscriminately. Love them, in other words. So when we see this in the church, when we see this structure in the church, we've seen this actually affirmed and flipped upside down so many different ways. We've seen churches where there's such level of authority in the government of the church that everything flows down. But what I'm proposing to you today, the the way God deals with each one of us is upside down. From the very beginning, he created us because he loves us. He accepts us. And because he loves us, he encourages us and affirms us continually. And because of that, our response is to place ourselves under accountability to him. We honor his word and we receive his word and we want to submit to his word because ultimately we want to give him all authority over our lives. In August 8, 1976, after lunch, at, after church, this woman sitting in our home who had come with a group from Egypt, missionaries who had come to Montreal for the Olympics, they came to Toronto afterwards. She was one of 20, and she came to visit us at home. So after lunch, she leans over to me and she says, would you like to have Jesus, Sultan, do you know what that word means? Master, Lord, King over your life? And that's when I accepted the Lord as my own Savior. I knew of him. I had been taught. I'd been raised in the church. 
I was an altar boy in the Catholic church I was being taught in. I was an altar boy on Sundays in the Coptic Orthodox church that I would go with my friend. I did all of that in Egypt. I came to Canada for two or three years. We were here. We came in 1970. So six years. In that six-year period, I would attend church. I would do all of these different things. But I didn't have a personal relationship with him. And that question tipped me over the edge. Brought me to the place where I submitted my life to his authority. It changed everything for me. It changed my friends. It changed my dynamics. It changed my priorities. It changed what I valued. So when we look at this, a lot of times what we see is God's authority over our lives. And we function from there out of a place of fear from the word of God to try to submit to it. And sometimes we use that as leverage in the church. I don't mean this church. I mean in the church generally. We use the, the authority of the word of God as leverage to get people to do things they don't want to do yet. By guilting them. By fearing them. By shaming them. You know, there was a period where the message of the end times was so popular... People got saved because of what was the fear of what's going to come after the rapture and after all of these things, the judgment of God. Okay, fine. People got saved. Hallelujah. But that's the wrong image of God. I'm glad they were saved though. Because they're in the flow of what now will cause them to come to know who Jesus really is and how much he honestly loves them. How good God is. We sang it today. I wish we can go back and sing that song before we leave here one more time. Accountability. Now, the reason I'm stressing this so much isn't just because of God and us. It's because I believe that the Lord is actually using this to shift us from looking at relationships this way, from authority down. I have been given the position of supervisor in this company. At work. So you have new employees. How are you going to treat them? From your position of authority... You may be told to do that from your position of authority above you. But how are you as a Christian going to function? At work. What about your house and your family? You're the head. Maybe you're in a home that doesn't have a husband. And you're the mom. And you're the head. How are you going to function? Are you going to exercise authority? Demand accountability? I'm your mom. Do what I say. We've said that. Many of us have said that. Why? Because I'm your father. Does that make sense? Well, sometimes we have to for safety. (laughs) Growing up, Aaron uh, always pushed the envelope. Aaron always pushed the envelope in a very good way. He always wanted to explore things. Okay? So our house is on a little side street. It's not on a major street. It's not on a side street. It's on a little crescent. On that crescent, there are cars that come around the corner, and there's a stop sign. And they have put police officers around the corner from that stop sign many times because nobody used to stop at that stop sign. So our house was the second driveway from the stop sign. So sometimes, Aaron being four or five, he wanted to explore things. So he would want to run up and down, do whatever he's doing. So I would tell him, Aaron, when I, when I say stop, stop. He goes, why? And that, that was his question all the time. Why? He, he was curious. He wanted to know. It's not a bad thing. 
But I told him, and he understood this. Thank God. I said, Aaron, when I say stop, I'm taller than you. I can see cars coming from around the corner where you being shorter would not see it coming around the corner. And if you don't stop, we're going to have a funeral. And I don't want to have a funeral. So don't do those things. When I tell you to stop, stop. He understood. He accepted it. Good boy. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. So how we function at home, how we function at church. We heard so many testimonies the last time we had a baptism of how people related to God as father and how they began to see him as father and how they, uh, they grasped that through relationships within the church context here through the leaders and how we have served them as demonstrating the heart of the father. I think I'm convinced it's because we have been somehow by God's grace given enough light to begin to function from bottom to the top. How we look at things are without judgment. There was something that happened a while back in our early days of walking together between the well and acts. And I turned to Rob and he says, hey, this is a judgment-free zone. Does that language sound familiar? Condemnation-free zone. Even better. Okay? What I took it as was judgment. Right? But there may be discernment of what the reality is, but there's no condemnation. You following me? In other words, there's acceptance. From within that place, we begin to flow. So I want to commit to you as one of your pastors, and I probably can say on behalf of all the others in leadership, that we will function with you from this place of acceptance. We will love you unconditionally. We will serve you unconditionally. We will open doors for you unconditionally. We will affirm you in the gifts that God has placed in you. We will bring you to the place where now you can begin and exercise accountability. Take on ministries. Begin to function outside of what you've been used to. Stretch out a bit. And we will grant you authority. The authority that God has granted us to be able to function in the areas that you have been called to function in. And that's the only time that we can be a family. Otherwise, we've flipped it upside down and it becomes a controlling organization. And that's not what I'm about. That's not what this church is about. That's not what any of us are about. We don't want to function that way. We want to function in the place that we grow together through acceptance, affirmation, voluntary accountability, and granted authority. Let's all stand and, and, and pray. that without having it blocked were you watching what I was doing okay father we we thank you that you are so gracious and so patient we thank you lord that your word is alive and brings us to a place of releasing the authority that you have through the affirmation and the acceptance that we exercise with one another. We thank you, Lord, that you have demonstrated that to us first. When we were yet sinners, you have accepted us. You've affirmed us. 
You've raised us up, Lord, and brought us to a place of sonship and daughtership. And Lord, you are teaching us all over again how family functions. Lord, we commit to you to grow according to how you have been leading us, how you have been teaching us. And where we make mistakes, Lord, we ask for your grace to cover it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.